thankful, Lord, that we can come today because of that name, that name of Jesus, that name that saves us and sets us free, that name that redeems us and gives us so many good things. Father, we come into your presence this morning knowing that you freely accept us, knowing that through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that we have redemption, that you have adopted us into your family, that, Father, we're going to spend forever with you in heaven. We're thankful, Lord, as your people today to come to your word and, Father, to learn from it. We pray right now that through your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would speak into every heart, that would speak in every mind. Father, through your Spirit, would you challenge us now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, a few years ago in Dayton, Ohio, there was a guy that wanted to get engaged to his girlfriend, and he didn't know exactly how to do it. And this is what he ended up coming up with. He invited her out for this picnic in a lovely park, and he set up the blanket, and he put the picnic basket there, and everything was just perfect. And then at the end of the picnic, he had hired a plane to come by, and the plane had this huge banner on the back of it. And the banner said, Judy, I love you. Will you marry me? And everybody in town saw this thing. I mean, this plane flying through town with this huge banner. And, and, and some people from the newspaper saw this and thought, well, I, I wonder who this Judy is. And so they looked around. They finally found this couple. They tracked them down. And they asked her that question. They said, Judy, what did you say? And she said, well, I said yes. I mean, how can you say no to a love like that? You know, to such a demonstration. That's a good question. How can you say no to a love like that? How can we, as believers, as people, say no to the love of God that He has poured out for us, that He has given us so many good things, that He has given us the invitation to draw near? How can we say no to a love like that? Today we come to the end of our series on drawing near, looking at the tabernacle. Just to remind us where we've been. We've been through all the different pieces of furniture. The altar of sacrifice, which speaks about, it starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. It goes on to sanctification, reading the Bible, the whole work of the Holy Spirit. It goes into praise and into worship. And lastly, we come to the curtain. And we move through the curtain from the holy place into the holy of holies. And we find there the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25 25 verse 10 says, Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high, and overlay it with pure gold both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. What was the Holy of Holies? Behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies was thought to be the very dwelling place of God. We know that as the tabernacle traveled through the wilderness, that God's presence went with it. There was that cloud by, you know, by day and that pillar of fire by night. But the presence of God went with them as they went through the desert. And it was thought that the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, that above the Ark was the Shekinah glory of God. The very tangible brilliance, brightness, of the radiance of God's majesty, of who He was. And it was for that reason that there was a veil, that there was a curtain that was placed before it. You see, that curtain was provided as a shield to shield an unholy people from the holiness and the radiance of God. The veil was there for protection. 
It was there as a reminder that we do not come lightly into the presence of God. That we don't mess around with holiness. That we're careful. There was only one person, and then only once a year, that they were allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And that was the high priest. One time a year, he would go behind that curtain into the Holy of Holies to make intercession for the people. And that was it. The veil was there so that we would not come carelessly and irreverently into God's presence. In the New Testament, remember that the temple was modeled after the tabernacle. But when Jesus died on the cross, something wonderful happened. It says that thick curtain, that veil that was between the holy place and the holy of holies was torn in two. And it says it was torn from the top to the bottom, which meant it started with God. That God started that tear. And that tear traveled downward from Him to mankind. That now, as believers, there is no veil. There is no barrier. There's nothing standing in the way between us and God because we don't have to fear anymore because through Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God has been given to us, imputed to us, and therefore we can come boldly. Hebrews 10.19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and a living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful." Look at the words there. Let us come boldly, unswervingly. Let us draw near with full assurance. This is what we have in Jesus. This is what God did for us through the cross. What do we learn about the Ark of the Covenant? Number one, we learn from the Ark of the Covenant to lean on God. That means that we can come to God and we can share whatever is on our heart. In the tabernacle, when that high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he didn't just go in wearing his street clothes. There was a specific outfit that he was supposed to wear. It says in Exodus 28, 29, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on a breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. If we can have that slide up. That's what it looked like right there. This is what the robe looked like. And you see over the heart, there were 12 different stones and each stone was of a different color. And those 12 different stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, when Aaron went into the Holy of Holies, he was taking with him in his heart the twelve tribes of Israel, the cares, the concerns of the nation. And when he was in the very presence of God, he would share those cares, he would share those concerns, he would make intercession for the people. Let me ask you a question. When you get into the Holy of Holies, when you spend time in God's presence, What's on your heart? What is it that you share to God? 
You see, very often we come into God's presence and we're fearful. We don't share openly and we don't share honestly what's on our heart. Sometimes we think, oh, if God really knew me, he'd be disgusted. If, 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 if I was to tell God everything that I was going through in my mind, if I was to tell God all the stuff that's in my life, you know, he'd be disgusted by that. People sometimes have the same problem with me as a pastor. You know, I'm sure Pastor Ike has experienced the same thing, that people come into our office to talk. And they sit down and they talk. And how's the weather? Oh, the weather's nice. And, the, you know, how you doing? Oh, everything's fine. Everything's great. Oh, yeah, kids are good. Yeah, everybody's great. Everybody's wonderful. Well, why are you here? You know, you just came in to talk? Well, sometimes they do. But other times you can see that there's something else. And you kind of dig a little bit and you dig a little bit and you dig a little bit. And finally it's like, oh, well, I'm just afraid to tell you this. I mean... I've been struggling with something in my life, but if you knew, you'd think I was awful. You'd think I was a terrible person. You'd think I was, I was the worst person on earth. Let me tell you something. After years of doing this, nothing surprises me anymore. I, I think it is absolutely impossible for someone to surprise me. I mean, I have heard everything. I'm sure Pastor Ike has heard everything. We've heard it. We've heard this and we've heard that and struggling with this and struggling with that. It's not like you're going to come in and say something and we're going to go, oh, I've never heard of that before. That's awful. How can you do that? No, I mean, we've heard it. Okay, You can't shock us. You can't surprise us. And you know what? The same is true with God. You can't shock Him. When you come into the presence of God, you should come to God with the emotions that you have. That's why I love the Psalms. The Psalms are the full spectrum of human emotion. You have the quiet, reverent moment, but you also have the shaking the fist at heaven, shouting at the top of your lungs moment. I was just talking last week with a guy that I, I knew in Kuwait, and, and you know what? He's been having a real terrible time in his life recently separated from his wife and just going through a, a time of real hurt. And I said to him, you know, what church are you going to? How, how are you find, finding comfort in this difficult time? He said, well, I, I, I've kind of stopped going to church. I said, well, well why? I mean, what's going on? He says, well, I, I just feel guilty. I, I just feel like yelling at God. And that's not right. I said, no, it's fine. I mean, you want to yell at God? Yell at God! You think he's going to be upset by it? You think he's going to be shocked by that? No, if you want to yell at God, yell at God! I've had shouting matches with God before. God's big. He can take it. Come to him with the emotions that you have. Come to God and know that whatever's on your heart, whatever it is, you can share that with him. You see, sometimes a problem is plain old fear. It's a, a misunderstood reverence that we have for God. Some of us, when we were growing up, in the churches that we were growing up in, taught us, either in a way that we can understand or in a way that we can't, that we should fear God, that we should be afraid of God. Now you're saying, Pastor Steve, the Bible says we're supposed to fear God. You're right, it does say that. In Psalm 111, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Yes, it talks about the fear of the Lord, that the fear of the Lord is a good thing. But can I tell you what that means? The fear of the Lord means that we come to God reverently or that we come to God with respect. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to be afraid of God. Fathers, let me ask you a question. Do you want your children to respect you or do you want your children to fear you? When you walk into the room, do you want your children to cower? Do you want your children to hide behind the couch? Do you want your children to say, oh, it's daddy, oh no. Is that what you want from your children? Is that the response that you want from them? Or do you want respect? You want to be able to roll around with your kid on the floor and wrestle with them and have fun with them. And yet, you know what? When you say it's over, it's over. Right? Right? That, that, that you have that strength, but that's a strength under control and you want your kids to respect you. You want your kids to understand that, that there are lines here. But you don't want fear. What's the difference between respect and fear? The difference is love. That you can lovingly respect people, but fear and love are opposites. 1 John 4.18 says there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to deal with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. That God has taken the first step. That God has shown his love. He's declared his love to us. We don't have to be afraid that we're going to be rejected by him or that we're not going to be welcomed by him. He has already made the first step and he bids us come to not be afraid, to come into his presence. The Ark of the Covenant was a scary thing in the Old Testament times. Remember that story of Uzzah? In the story, the Ark of the Covenant, they had tried using it as a weapon against the Philistines and they found out it didn't work that way. The Philistines had actually captured the Ark. But now they had the Ark back and they were bringing it back to Jerusalem. And as they're bringing it back to Jerusalem, it's on the back of a horse cart. And as they're traveling along, the story says here in 2 Samuel 6.6 that they came to the threshing floor of Nacon and Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to that day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Wrong reaction. What God was trying to say here is that you need to respect there, there, there has to be at least some level of respect for this ark. And Uzzah did not show it. And because of that, Uzzah lost his life. And sometimes we stop at reading that verse and we think God is too harsh. But that's not the full story. We go on to read this. That, he, that David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark from God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. The fear was gone. Why? Because he saw that the ark brought blessing. 
that the purpose of the ark was blessing and not a curse. You see, God wants us to come into His presence as a blessing to us. He wants us to spend time with us to bless us and not curse us. He wants it to be a happy time. He wants it to be a healing time. And yet so often, we don't bring to God what's on our heart. We're fearful, like David was fearful. What are some practical examples of that? Well, around here, can I give you one practical example? I think one of those times is communion. That sometimes when we come to the communion table, we're so seeking to be respectful for God that sometimes we come very close to the line of fear. And we say that in our attempt to be reverent, perhaps we are making people afraid of the table and thinking that they have to somehow be perfect or they somehow have to have everything in their life absolutely, totally together before they can take that bread and take that cup. So you have a communion service and you have people getting up and leaving because it's communion and, and their life isn't totally right with God. And you know what? The Bible says that we should come to the table reverently. But you know what? If the communion is being passed out and you know that there's something in your life that isn't right with God, you don't have to leave. Just sit there and let the elements pass by. If you're there and you know that you're too young or you're, you're not in a spot where you should be taking the communion, then you enjoy the service, you listen to what's being said, you use that as a time of reflection, a time of, of just of, of listening to the Lord, and when the elements come, you just pass by it. It's not going to strike you dead just to see it go by. I mean, we don't need to be afraid in that way. Fear is a terrible thing. Fear keeps us from the Lord. Then in the Second World War, there were Japanese soldiers that had dug in amongst all kinds of thousands of islands in the, in the kind of southern Pacific. And when the war ended, the Japanese government had a problem because all these soldiers were hiding. And these soldiers had been told that if the Americans find you, they will kill you. They will torture you. Not just you, but they will kill your kids as well and your families. And so these soldiers were terrified and they were hiding in caves. And so first of all, they thought, well, we'll just go to all these islands and we'll just shout, the war is over! Everybody come on out, war's over! But nothing happened. Because all these soldiers were so afraid, living in these holes in the ground, living in these caves, they were just terrified to come out. And so the Japanese emperor made a recording that said, the war ended on this date, and this is what's happened, and this is what's happened, and I am your emperor, and I want you to come out of the caves, and I want you to go home to your families. It's over. And they took that recording, and they put it on loudspeakers, and pointed those loudspeakers into the jungles. And as that message went out, that recording went out, and it was replayed over and over and over again, one by one, these soldiers started coming out of the jungles and going home. Yet the amazing thing is that in March of 1974, 29 years after the war was over, the last one of these soldiers came out of hiding. He had lived in a cave for 29 years of his life. He was 60 years old. That meant he had spent half his life living in a cave living in fear, living in hiding, only coming out in the middle of the night to eat frogs and whatever he could find 
He finally came out because he was starving to death. And he was sick. For 29 years, he had lived in a damp, dark cave, hiding, fearing for his life. And you may think how sad that is. And can I tell you though, there are some Christians that do pretty much the same thing. They spend their entire Christian life living in fear of God. Serving Him in the outer court and yet never venturing near the Holy of Holies. Never going beyond the veil. Never seeking to spend a time with God and, and, and find God as an intimate Father because maybe they had such a terrible Father growing up. Don't live your life in fear. Maybe someone else is saying, Pastor Steve... Why do we have to come and share our hearts with God? Doesn't God already know us? Doesn't God know everything? Why do I have to come and tell God how I'm doing if God already knows it? Well, that's kind of like husbands, you saying, well, you know what, I know that my wife loves me so I don't have to tell her. <laughs> Just because you know your wife loves you doesn't mean that you don't have to tell her. All right? Why? Because there's something special in the telling. It's in the communicating, I love you. It's in the sharing of the heart that relationship is built and that intimacy comes. And the same is true with God. Even though God knows it, you still have to come and you still have to communicate it. What do you do when you get into the presence of God? You tell Him what's on your heart, number one. But number two, what do you do when you get into the presence of God? You listen to what's on God's heart. When we look at those robes that the priest would wear in, those 12 stones, in that same breast piece, there was a little thing called the umen and the thumen. The umen and the thumen were used to make decisions for Israel. The priest would get in there. We read about that in Exodus 28, verse 30. Put in the urim and the thumen in the breast piece so that they may be over Aaron's heart. Whenever he enters into the presence of the Lord, thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. In other words, Aaron would go in there and he'd say, God, should we go to war against Edom? And he'd pull out the Urim and the Thummim and he'd, it was kind of like a dice. He'd kind of throw it and it was like a yes or a no. And the thought was, in the presence of God, God could take those and he could use those and move those in such a way that that would make a decision for the people of Israel. Now, fortunately, we don't still live in these days. Can you imagine? You know, should I go to church today? Roll a six. Nope, staying home today, you know. It, it doesn't quite work the same way today. Today, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us to make decisions. The Holy Spirit guides us and leads us. But in order to do that, you have to listen to God. You have to spend time not talking, but listening. Maybe I've used the story here before, but way back in the day before they had refrigerators, they had ice houses. Basically, an ice house was a place where in the wintertime they would go to the lake and they would cut out these huge slabs of ice from the river and, or the lake and they'd drag those up onto shore and they would have usually a place that was underground, a place that was insulated and protected and they would fill that with sawdust that was a good insulator. And that ice would go in there and that ice would stay there. Usually it would last the whole summer and even into the fall. And then when people wanted ice, they would get out the horse cart, they would cut off a great big old chunk of ice, they'd stick that on the back of the cart and they'd go up and down through the town. 
And people would come out and they'd hack off a piece of ice and they'd give it to you and you'd take that ice and you'd go put it in your ice box. And that was what kept things cool. My mom says that when she was really, really, really little that the kids would run out and they would all grab the shavings of the ice. And that was like early popsicles. They didn't have popsicles back in the day. That was really cool. The story goes that there were some men that were working in an ice house and a man lost his gold pocket watch something very, very dear to him. And they looked and they looked and they looked. But because it was kind of towards the end of the summer, there was so much sawdust that it was just impossible to find that watch. It was like looking for a needle in a haystack. And they looked for it for hours and hours and hours and they could not find it. And they broke for lunch and they went outside and and the guy was just saying, you know what, I'm never going to find this thing. I'm never going to find it. A little boy heard what was going on and he went into the ice house. And about five minutes later, he came walking out with a watch in his hand. And everyone was amazed and they said, how did you find that? We couldn't, we took us hours, we couldn't find it. And the boy said, I went into the house and I laid down in the sawdust and I made myself very, very quiet. And then I heard the ticking. You see, likewise, when we come into the presence of God, we've got to learn how to get quiet. We've got to learn how to spend time listening to that still, small voice that God has placed within us. What do we do in the presence of God? We share what's on our heart. We listen to what's on God's heart. But lastly, when we get into the presence of God, we just spend time with Him. Just spend time loving Him. The tabernacle was a physical structure that represented a spiritual reality. It was a picture of heaven. It was a model of how we are to come into God's presence. All that it represents, everything, if you look at the tabernacle, everything boils down to a very simple point. Hebrews 9.23. It says, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven himself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. For he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. It's not the man-made thing. That wasn't the issue. It's what it pointed to. The whole purpose of the tabernacle, the whole purpose is to remind us to draw near of our relationship with Jesus Christ. That Jesus came, he died on a cross for each one of us to set us free, to give us life, to give us hope. And he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to take us to be with him in glory. This life is preparation for the next. If we do nothing else in this life, if we get everything else wrong, if the one thing that God wants us to learn is to learn how to love him, to learn how to spend time with him, to learn how to do what we are going to be doing forever in eternity. That's what this life is all about. The Ark of the Covenant held within it a few very special items. They were reminders of God's covenant with Israel. What was in the Ark? There were the two stone tablets, the Ten Commandments that Moses took from Mount Sinai. There was a jar of manna, how God had provided for the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. And there was Aaron's staff that had budded. 
That was God's covenant. It was a sign of leadership, of direction. These three articles were in the, the Ark of the Covenant to remind Israel of their covenant, of their relationship with God. Let me ask you a question. What's in your Ark? You say, well, I don't have a golden box in my house with stuff in it. That's not not what I'm talking about. You see, each one of us has a covenant relationship with God. And each one of us have things that we remember. We have things that we kind of hold dear, that we hold precious. They are reminders of our relationship with God. Reminders of our covenant with Him. Remember that story in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they find the ark and they put it up there at the front and you know all the, all the Nazis are there and they open it up and the guy's face melts off and it's one of those wonderful scarring things as a child that will never leave me. But you know, you know the ghosts come, they kill everybody and then they, the, you know, Indy doesn't look and so he's okay. You know. Would you have looked? Honestly, if you were there, wouldn't you have looked? I want to open up my ark this morning. Don't worry, your face isn't going to melt. When I get into the Holy of Holies and I open my ark, what do I find within it? I find the memory of me as a 13-year-old boy sitting at the foot of an old wooden cross overlooking Lake Huron the day I got saved. I, I see myself my first year of university, a rainy miserable night when I was at a very low place and God meeting me in that place. My first missions trip where I decided to go into ministry full time. I remember that moment. I remember it like it was yesterday. I pull that moment out and I look at it and I remember it. Walking down the aisle and asking Naomi to be my wife. That's in the ark. The birth of my three girls. Each one of those are in that ark. I could go on. I could talk about many, many different things. Many different memories that are precious and special. Some of them hurtful. And yet still special because it was there that the Lord met me in a special way. This is what's within my ark. Let me ask you, what's in yours? What do you keep within that box? What is in your mind when you come into the Holy of Holies? When you spend time just being intimate, just being real, just spending time and loving God. Let me just close by saying this. Those who have studied English literature have probably heard the name Elizabeth Barrett. Elizabeth Barrett was born in 1806 in England. She had a very jealous and domineering father who always restricted her and was always kind of getting in the way of, 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 of her really enjoying life. She, she published her first book of poetry when she was only 12 years old. Most of it had been written when she was as young as 7 years old. But when she was 15 years old, she had an accident and she hurt her back. And because of that, she had to spend a long time in the hospital. And during her time in the hospital, she was infected by a lung disease. And as a result of that, she was basically an invalid. She left the hospital, she went home, she spent her entire life in her bed. 
Anytime she wanted to get up, anytime she said, Daddy, I think I'm feeling better today. I wanted to go outside and run around outside. Her father would say, No, you're an invalid. Stay in that bed. That's your life now. There's no leaving it. And she lived in a bed from the age of 15 to the age of 40. She continued to write poetry. And one of her poems caught the interest of another poet by the name of Robert Browning. Robert Browning started a correspondence with her. They began writing back and forth. And eventually, through that correspondence, they fell in love with each other. Robert Browning desperately wanted to marry Elizabeth Barrett, and yet her father said, absolutely not. Robert Browning would write and say, look, you're healthy, you're okay. I know you've lived in bed for a long time, but get up, get out. Get outside in the sunlight, it'll make you feel better. And her father rejected that, and because of that, the father forbade Elizabeth Barrett from ever meeting Robert Browning. Until one day they couldn't hold it back. And Robert Browning came and he took Elizabeth Barrett and they went off and they got married. They moved to Italy where the sunshine was wonderful. And pretty soon Elizabeth Barrett was out of the bed and she was healthy, more healthier than she had ever been in her entire life. But there was only one problem. Her father had disowned her. Her father had said, I will never speak to you again, ever. You are dead to me. She wanted to continue that relationship with him. And so she began writing. Every week she would write a letter. A beautiful letter. A love letter. Basically saying, Dad, I love you. I don't want to have this thing between us. Is there any way that you could find it in your heart to forgive me? Is there any way that we could come for a visit? Could we just repair that relationship that has been broken? Every week she wrote another letter, knowing that eventually, after her father read those letters, something was going to happen. But the weeks led into months, and the months led into years. And still nothing from her father. And eventually a package did come, a big box. And when the box was opened, in that box was every letter she had written to him unopened. He hadn't opened a single letter. If he had, he would have read of her love. If he had, it would have maybe melted his heart. If he had, things could have been different. But years and years and years of writing, and he never opened a single letter. And because of that, he died. Never having restored that relationship to his daughter. Now why do I say that? I say that to say that God has so richly called us to come. The Bible says that He stands at the door of our hearts and He knocks. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to get to know us in a, in a, in a real way, in a personable way. He wants us to spend time with Him and listen to Him and get to know Him and find out what's on His heart. He bids us come and He gives us so many opportunities And yet we waste those opportunities. They are like unopened love letters. And we simply say return to sender. He invites us to come and we go out and we play games instead. 
or watch television or do this or do that or so many different things crowd for our attention. And God bids us come and He invites us to come. And so often as Christians, we do everything but the most important thing. In this coming week, my challenge to you is this. Just take some time. Take some time to get behind the veil. Take some time to enter into that Holy of Holies. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, with the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit, through worship, come and spend time with Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful, Father, that, Lord, you have given us so many wonderful, precious gifts. We're thankful, Lord, for the fact that you have saved us, that you set us free. Lord, you have given us so much. So many precious treasures each one of us hold within the ark of our lives, the covenant that you have with each one of us. Yet, Father, so often we are so busy out of fear or misunderstood reverence and, and for so many other reasons, Lord. We just fail to do the most important thing in our lives, which is to love you, to worship you. It's why you created us. It's why we were born. It's what we were designed to do. It's our purpose. It's what we'll spend eternity doing. So, Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would gently lead us. That, Father, you would give us those gentle reminders to take the time, to make the time necessary, to spend it in that holy place, in the holy of holies, with you, in prayer, in fellowship, in intimacy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.